You are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode 18, and today's topic is the use of pre-registration in research studies. My guest today is Associate Professor Matthias Mittner at the Research Group for Cognitive Neuroscience at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Matthias Mittner, uh, welcome to Open Science Talk. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've invited you here to talk a little bit about pre-registration. Uh, I know you've done uh, you've done this and, and I'd like to hear uh, how this has turned out. But let's start with what is pre-registration? Uh, pre-registration, that's, uh, the, the concept is very simple, actually. Um, it means basically that we have to specify our methods and our hypotheses um, before we um, collect our data. So, so before we go and um, and uh, collect our very first data point, we have to exactly specify uh, which kind of analysis we are going to run on the data that we collect, and uh, what the outcome of these analysis is going to mean to us, and how we will interpret it in the light of our theory. And that is um, nothing magical about it, and it's actually how we all learn to do research because it's. Um, so in in our when we learn about how to conduct studies, we learn that we have to specify hypotheses. So in order to derive a good study to test this hypothesis, um, that is uh, based on um, on a very common model of scientific research, the hypothetical deductive model of science. And it's basically how everyone learns it. However, in practice, it's often very different. And that's because um, there are practical constraints that uh, sometimes force us to start with data collection a bit early. So it is quite common to collect the data first and then come up with some hypotheses afterwards. Um, in fact, in at least in my field of psychology, that has been it has been general practice and even recommended approach to start writing the methods and results section of an of a scientific paper. Only then to go on and write the introduction and specify the hypothesis, and that is, uh, of course, um, wrong from the point of view of this uh, this hypothetical deductive model of science. Uh, so, so, what could the consequences be uh, if you're not doing this pre-registration? What, what kind of um bad science uh, could you end up with? Um, the problem is that uh, um, that the, the freedom that you have by interpreting uh, your data without a clear guiding hypothesis that was, been, uh, was specified beforehand is that it can result in unreliable findings. Um, it is a process that is often called post hoc storytelling uh, because we can tell we can look at the data and then tell a story that makes sense of this data. And that is um, um, that maybe sounds nice, sounds fine, but it's problematic for many reasons, because even if we have data where there is uh, absolutely no effect present, it is possible to tell a story about this data that will fit uh, the data. So if we go um, the opposite way, um, and collect data first and try to come up with some nice hypothesis can explain it, it very often leads to results that cannot be replicated. So when we try to do the study again, they will not uh, lead to the same results. Talk us through what, what kind of uh, practice you have been using when you've done uh, pre-registration. How do you do it? Uh, well, of course, uh, so as I said, you have to specify exactly what you want to do to your data. So, and of course, you have to prove that you actually 
um, made uh, this com or you have to make a commitment that you can prove you made before you collected the data. And that is why you have to somehow timestamp an analysis plan. And nowadays, of course, that's done online. So you can upload a plan or even an analysis script before you collect your first data set and um, timestamp it, for example, at the uh, Open Science Framework. And uh, later on, you can then prove by showing this timestamp and the timestamp from the collected data that your plan was in place before you actually um, uh, collected your first data set. And um, in, so I have done this with several studies uh, now. However, there's also an important distinction that, that is very interesting uh, conceptually because uh, there, uh, you can do something like a low threshold pre-registration where you um, uh, write this, this report and upload it, timestamp it yourself. But there's also an even better way that is called a registered report where um, a scientific journal uh, reviews this plan and approves it for publication independent of uh, the actual results of this study. So this is the concept of a re registered report. And uh, that, um, of course, um, results in acceptance or at two stages. So you have to do two, two rounds of peer review. The first round will happen before you collected actually your data. So you just motivate the research question and specify the exact methods that you're going to use and the analysis that you're going to run. And uh, that plan has to be approved by the journal. And uh, once you have collected the data and followed your plan, the, the journal has committed to publishing the data, even uh, independent of the results. So it's kind of a way to get rid of the notion that you have to have a positive uh, outcome of, of that study, but that you can publish negative results as well. Exactly. In addition to solving the problem of unreliable findings, you also uh, reduce the, the file draw problem where um, yeah, non-significant results often end up in the file draw instead of being published. And there by distorting the, the literature. That's right. So what kind of journals uh, have you done this with uh, the, the peer-reviewed uh, version of the pre-registration? Yeah, I had just one big project where I actually did this with the European Journal of Neuroscience that uh, was one of the first to implement these registered reports. Today, there are more, almost 200 journals um, um, supporting this format and it's really taking off. So I think in the future, there will be even more um, journals supporting this. But in my own... Um, uh, so I, I, I did it on a project where I wanted to replicate a previous study in order to build on it. Because one, one, of, the, one of my main research fields is the field of attentional fluctuations and mind wandering. So I found a study where, where they showed that you can use non-invasive brain simulation, basically just entering, putting some electrodes on the head and putting a weak current on it. You can um, change um, how much attention people pay. And I thought that is unlikely uh, to, to work. <laughs> so I thought uh, I, I would like to see whether this works because it was also um, uh, really uh, interesting because if it actually is possible, that would have been uh, a major um, advancement and, and could lead to a ton of applications. So I thought this is something that I want to find out. So I hooked up with some collaborators from Amsterdam and from Göttingen and we made this interlab collaboration effort in order to get a good enough sample to actually convincingly prove or disprove um, this result. So and then we, we went and made this plan, uh, an extensive um, power analysis. We wrote all the documents that the different data collectors in the different labs would have to follow and standardized pretty much everything that was to standardize and then submitted this protocol without the, any data being collected at all to the journal. 
and um, we got some very good uh, review feedback. And as a consequence, we had to adjust, of course, and cut down our, our protocol a bit and extend the sample size even more. So we ended up having like um, almost 300 subjects in this study. Uh, that is far more than has, uh, has been done uh, before in, in similar studies. Then we got this, this stage one acceptance, which means that we would, provided that we actually did collect the data according to the plan that we had written, we would get uh, a final publication in this journal. Um, yeah, and once this was done, we just went, you know, and rolled out this study to the three labs that were collaborating. And all of us just collected the data that we had committed to collect. And then we pushed the button to run the analysis scripts. So, so, um, so the peer review uh, process here uh, really uh, defined or redefined some of some parts of, of the whole project. It definitely did because um, we based our power analysis, which uh, the power analysis is actually basically a justification for the number of subjects that you collect in your study. And we based this power analysis analysis based on the original report that reported an, a certain size of the effect. And because that effect was pretty big in their original study, we ended up with a lower number of subjects than was probably necessary and that was pointed out by the reviewers and as a consequence we had to increase our sample size and reduce the number of conditions that we originally wanted to test so it was a really uh, complete redesign of the study and i think that's also another major strength because the reviewers can actually influence the study how it's being conducted instead of just saying after the fact uh, whether it was good or not so i think reviewers feel much more committed uh, to their reviewing because they can change the scientific process. And we realized that when we looked at how much feedback we actually got, so there were pages and pages of feedback, one of the reviewers even um, simulated poss possible outcomes of our study and put in a real effort to, to help us uh, making this study better. So what happens if you actually stumble upon uh, something that you didn't expect in, a, in an experiment? Um, some interesting result that you didn't predict uh, in the pre-registration. Do you have to um, isolate that or do a completely different study or could you use it in that study when you have pre-registered uh, hypothesis uh, already? Um, well, the, the only thing is that, so, so you can of course use any results surprising or not uh, from a study to increase your knowledge. However, you might have less confidence in the finding if if it happened to be in the data, but not um, being motivated by a clear hypothesis beforehand. So what 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 the result of this is basically that you have to um, specify in the paper whether the, a particular result was uh, pre-registered or whether it is to be treated as exploratory. There's nothing wrong with exploratory studies at all. You, you can always uh, run a study and to, in order to find out something new. That's a, a very important part of science. So you need to be able to be creative, come up with new designs, try to use data to come up with new hypotheses. But um, in the hypothetical deductive model of science, you ha then have to go on and design a new study where you test this particular exploratory finding. So as a consequence, if you have a pre-registered report, for example, where you find a surprising result, you might use this surprising result as a starting point of a new pre-registered result where you try to find whether this is actually a reproducible finding or just um, an accident of the uh, the study that you run. When you've done these uh, pre-registrations, uh, are they open from from the start, or do you have some sort of an embargo period? Uh, I'm guessing that uh, some researchers would have some hesitations uh, because of that idea of that study. 
Yes. Um, so actually, that's something that you're free to choose because you can um, you can either say that you want to make this pre-registration open or you can keep it locked uh, until um, a certain time period has run out. So when you specify pre-registration on the Open Science Framework, for example, you can either choose to make it public at once or you can choose an embargo period. So you cannot say that you want to keep it hidden indefinitely because that would defeat the purpose. Say you, you pre-register a study and then you find a non-significant result and choose not to publish it, then uh, this re then this pre-registration would be hidden from the literature and it would end up in the file drawer in the same way. So you could um, kind of compromise the concept of a pre-registration by just picking out the ones that worked out in the same way you can uh, with, with published studies. In my own um, studies, I always make them public from the from the outset because it also establishes that you were kind of the first one to come up with this idea so you establish that this is your territory and you can later prove uh, by using the timestamp that you were kind of the first to to come up with the story so it's very unlikely that you will be um, that there will be someone in the meantime coming and and stealing your idea i think what does your colleagues think about this kind of practice because it's um, in psychology, it has been used for, for several years, but I'm guessing that not everyone uses it. So what are they their um, hesitations or, or what do they think? Yeah, um, I think there are some... So, so almost everyone is quite interested in this concept of pre-registration because it, uh, it, vi or it resonates with our education because that's how we learn how science should be done in the first place. Uh, but there are some concerns about, um, um, for once, uh, this issue of creativity that someone might feel that his create, creative process is stifled by having to pre-register everything before so that you don't have the freedom to investigate new ideas and old data and so on. But that's, of course, a misconception because you can always go on and interpret or look at your data in more detail as long as you specify that this is an exploratory way of doing it. Um, another issue is that, that pre-registration have a high startup cost. So you need to put a lot more thought into your plan uh, before data collection can commence. In the, in the extreme case of the registered reports, you have to wait for uh, reviewer feedback, uh, sometimes for months, and then they don't necessarily approve your protocol. So you might have to wait another few months, change your protocol, and even then it might not be approved. So the, the, for example, my own project with this, this large-scale replication effort that we conducted I think I started it late in 2015 and only now it is being published. And that's because uh, the time from thinking I want to do this study until I actually started data collection was two years in this case. Um, so it it is very difficult to do this, for example, with starting PhD students, because a PhD student is forced to collect some data in order to get uh, a PhD, basically. So uh, you cannot spend two years before collecting your first data set if, you're, if you are only have three years in total to finish three such studies. So uh, do you see a solution for that? Because I'm guessing that you would want that practice uh, even for the PhD students uh, and have it pre-registered. Yeah, that's difficult to, um, it's it's a difficult uh, thing to solve. I guess it would, it has something to do with how research is, is done um, and how we imagine the intellectual contributions of uh, of the members of a, of a research team should be. Um, so the only way that this could be done productively would be that the 
supervisor or the PI um, does the pre-registration maybe before uh, the PhD students starts up, or that at least uh, um, such a process is in is in is already underway once the PhD students start up. But that also results in the PhD student having less of an influence on his own project, which is of course uh, not very good. So um, there are you know upsides and downsides to everything. I guess uh, um, the problem is finding the golden middle way. Do you now use this method in all your studies or are there some studies that you choose not to do it in? Um, I use um, I use pre-registration in pretty much everything I do because um, there's usually always something that you can pre-specify even though it's not everything. So um, if I don't have much time and there's a tight uh, constraint on me having to start up a study, then I just pre-register some, some ideas or vague hypotheses that I have instead of going in and writing the statistical analysis scripts beforehand. Um, but there's always something you know about your study and it always pays off specifying that something before collecting the data because it prevents you from making the hindsight bias of thinking that you knew all along what the outcome would be. So how do you see this uh, developing further? Do you see this as a a method for uh, some kind of uh, research fields or do you see it as a household uh, method for all researchers? Uh, How do you see this in, in the future? Um, I think um, this method has been growing in use, and that's a good thing because uh, getting when I, when I find when I, when I find a pre-registered study in my literature research, then I really have a lot more trust in the results from this study than in in any other uh, research report. And talking to other researchers, that is not I'm not the only one for uh, for whom that is true. And so I really think that people will start using this more and try to integrate it in their scientific workflow. I think some of the incentives have to change in order to make it possible. So we maybe have to focus more on incremental steps in science and less on revolutionary findings that are incentivized in many ways in in, in science today. So it, it will be a hard road, I think, because all the incentives are in place to discourage um, careful planning uh, before the study is being done. But I think we're on a good way and there's quite some community building going on um, that is um, sure to have an impact and hopefully change uh, culture in the long run. Matthias Mittner, uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Same here. Hi, everyone. Did you notice that Matthias didn't mention what they found out from that replication study they did? Well, check out our webpage opensciencetalk.com and we'll give you a link to their project. Thanks for listening.